Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> Hello, Foibles fans. Foiblers, as I like to call you. (laughs) We're back again, this time with a great favorite, pretty much worldwide, worldwide, Jane Austen. And we're just going to stick with two books today because uh, she's so rich and worthwhile, and we definitely recommend that you read both these books. We will be spoiling them. (laughs) There probably are people who don't know what the story is or what happens. So we will, in order to talk about it with any sort of nuance, depth, we will be definitely spoiling it. So we'll just let you know that up front. And we do recommend both books, tell you that right up front. So, you know, but feel free to listen and and, uh, partake. We'll try to fill in uh, uh, plot details and things as we go along to help people along with that. As you know, uh, we like to read together. My mom, Rita, will read to me, Zoe. That's how we enjoy a lot of the, the books that we record episodes about. So we decided to revisit Pride and Prejudice on a kind of a whim, but I guess we were also a little bit sparked by a different book we had read recently, which we'll touch on. And then we decided we loved Pride and Prejudice, rereading it so much that we'd read another Jane Austen. And so now we kind of want to compare contrast and use that as a doorway into the world of Jane Austen. Right. Into the brilliance of her mind and the sharpness of her character. I read Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. Actually, all of her novels, except the unfinished one, the Sandrington, I read those probably when I was in graduate school, so back in my 20s, quite a while ago. I remember sitting on the fire escape steps uh, and with this gigantic tome that had all the novels in it. And so, you know, (laughs) that was a nice, yeah, like... That's hefty. It was hefty, and the print was fairly small, and the paper was kind of thin. But I I plowed my way through them, and I liked them, I enjoyed them, but I don't think that I had the full, could take the full measure of the brilliance of them until, you know, over the years. And I think, I'm trying to remember, I think I've only read the book twice or three times now. Pride of Prejudice? Yes. Now, of course, you had read Pride and Prejudice before, right? I had, yeah. It was actually the only Jane Austen I'd read. Uh, Obviously, I grew up with adaptations of Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility and maybe some other Jane Austen plots. So when I was traveling in 2015, Mother visited me in Korea. Check out our episode about our uh, adventures adventures in South Korea. Our drunken uh, orgy in the middle of the night. And, uh, <laughs> Don't say orgy. <laughs> I can cut that out. Our drunken, our drunken adventures. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which was so fun. So that's a good episode, and that's way back in the catalog. But Mom came and visited me while I was traveling, and so when she came to visit, I asked her to bring me some novels to read. And she brought me some very good novels, including Pale Fire by Nabokov, which we've recorded an episode about. Um, All the Pretty Nabokov. All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy and Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. And so I finally read Pride and Prejudice and and I loved it. And that's all there is to it. (laughs) But now we'll say more. Well, now this time you could enjoy it so much more because of my my really nuanced characterizations and the right. really, I mean, my voice work is amazing. Stupendous. It's stupendous, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to give them a sample of that. Really <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can pick out a passage and I'll read it. It is difficult reading because the punctuation uh, per- conventions in the books uh, at the time are so different than they are now because a comma now, it means a pause. But I would pause slightly at the commas and then all of a sudden the sentence wouldn't make sense because you had to read through the comma in order to, for all of the pieces to, to fall together for them to gel so to speak yeah. and so I did have to reread things two and three times sometimes just for us to both be able to follow what was happening <laughs> I would say you did pretty admirably well yeah, given was, that it wasn't too bad but it, it it was the challenge and then same with sense and sensibility as well I mean that's, I'm just going to say this up front. 
If I have to rate the two books, Desert Island-wise, it's Pride and Prej all the way. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah, 100%. So, Jane was born in 1775, and she died in 1817. Young. She died, and she's only 41, and she was working right up to the end. She uh, died, I believe, in April, and she was working on a novel up through March. And even though... She had been ill for a couple of years. She'd been increasingly sicker, weaker, lacking in energy. Pretty soon she couldn't really even get up and walk, but she just really kept plowing away and working. So kudos to Jane. Thank you, Jane, for your your artistry and your persistence. Uh, she was born in England. She was born to a clergyman. So a lot of these these characters that you see in the novels, these, these gentlemen, these clergymen, is her father. And she loved her father really well. She uh, loved her mother as well. I don't think her mother was quite the flighty, quite the flighty mother we see in a lot of her books, but apparently she was probably a little bit like that. Yeah, so she was married, uh, married, god damn it. She was born to uh, Reverend George Austin and Cassandra Lee. Lee. I guess they pronounce it Lee there, L-E-I-G-H. And then Jane had an older sister named Cassandra, named after the mother, obviously, Jane. And then she had six brothers. Six, wow. Six brothers. They were James, George, Charles, Francis, Henry, and Edward. Talk about just generic English names. So, yeah, so she had her six brothers and one sister, really close to the sister, and you see that throughout the books. In fact, oftentimes, well, certainly in Pride and Prejudice, and even in Sense and Sensibility, the sister relationship actually is the primary relationship in the book. Right. It's the solid one. It's the deep one. It's the rooted and everlasting one. The one that there's no contested loyalty to, to the sister. So she obviously had this really great relationship with her sister. In fact, this is, and this makes me really sad, she was so close with the sister, apparently her sister, after Austin died, had possession of like 3,000 letters that Austin had written. Wow. And she burned them all except for like 160 of them. Oh my gosh. To save the embarrassment of family and friends from Jane's very trenchant observations and comments. Oh, that's know, too bad. I know, That's the thing that we love about Jane Austen now is her sharp wit. Yeah, if only she'd like bundled them away and just maybe hidden them. And they were found a hundred years later. Yeah. But just the properness, I guess. And then, I don't know how many years it was after she died, her nephew wrote a biography of her. And that's the biography that set her up as this little, almost like Emily Dickinson, this little housebound little moth of a woman, very quiet, very proper, very staid, which is really not what she was like at all. But that was the way to, well, first of all, cover up her sharp tongue and her her really pithy observations, but also to, in a way, make an apologia for the fact that she was this woman publishing these books that, you know, and even at, even though at the time after her death and even during her life, she was not super popular. She was not like a best-selling author big time or anything like that. She was successful and she did sell books and, and people did know of these books. And so when he wrote this, uh, this biography afterwards, it makes sense that because of the time, women just didn't do that. Because even later, you know, in the 18th and the 19th century, when the Brontes were writing, they went under male names. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you were from a good family, interestingly enough, they were also children of, of uh, a clergy. Uh, if you were from a good family, you, you, a woman, you, basically what they would say at the time is a woman's name should never appear before the public in print except when she gets married and when she dies. Right. And so here she is out here. And in fact, um, Austin's books were published anonymously. Oh, okay. So it was by Anonymous, so her name wasn't on them. And so after Sense and Sensibility was published and it was popular enough to, to, them, to then have Pride and Prejudice published, the authors was listed as Anonymous by the author of Sense and Sensibility. So they could still capitalize on the success, but not still not name her. I digressed a little bit there, or I, I didn't really digress, but I went forward a little bit more quickly, I have a little bit more to say about her early life, which I'm sure you will enjoy hearing. Anyway, so she's got these six brothers, and apparently one of her brothers, I believe it was George, 
was uh, disabled. He had an intellectual disability, and apparently he was taken into care. He was given to someone to care for him, which was not uncommon at the time uh, because of the way they viewed mental disability, and it would be a shame to the family and an embarrassment. And it's been that way up until very recently, even in my lifetime, it was like that. And then there was another brother, uh, Edward, who was actually adopted by a corollary family member of the Knight family, Thomas and Elizabeth Knight, had actually adopted him out of his family because they didn't have a son. Hmm. So then he ended up inheriting their estates. So he became sort of like a Mr. Bingley or Mr. Darcy. He became a landed gentry. Oh, interesting. And nobody else in her family, you know, in her immediate family was landed. He was the only one. So he became kind of wealthy. Hmm. And then she had a couple brothers who were in the, mil- in the, in the Navy and in the military. So she kind of knew about that a little bit. And then she had a brother who went into the uh, clergy, like her father. So she had, you know, quite a, a variety of... Kind of all the courses the men in her books take. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, but the, the cool thing is that she knew. You know, she wasn't just making up sort of what the circumstances, even if she exaggerated them for humorous effect or changed them around for purposes of the novel. They're based in what she knew. Yeah. And so I thought that that was pretty cool. And then um, they, the two brothers who were in the Navy actually fought uh, in the uh, Napoleonic Wars mm-hmm. against the revolutionary France. So, not the Napoleonic Wars, sorry. Well, I guess it was Napoleon. Anyway, they, they fought in the war. Apparently it was uh, called the Never-Ending War because it, it ran so long. It went on for like 29 years of Jane Austen's life. And so she really knew a lot about, she didn't really seem to write about the war directly, but she wrote a lot about soldiers and the redcoats being billeted in various villages and so forth. So they had this large family, and by by the time that uh, the reverend, her father, died in 1805, the young men were all, you know, adopted out or in the military or whatever. And he left two daughters and his wife. And uh, the daughters, neither of the daughters ever married, Jane or Cassandra. And so basically they had to figure out how to live. Sense and sensibility. Except there were three daughters there. But it was, you know, basically he died. Uh, and once the um, clergyman dies, and it makes sense, the living will pass to somebody else. So all of that income is done. So it's only whatever income they may have had from bonds or land or uh, that they had saved up or you know whatever uh, that they would have to live on, and it ended up that there was uh, an annuity from interest where they had five hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, five hundred pounds a year for the three of them to live on, which is exactly what they had in Sense and Sensibility. Right. So the things that she's reflecting on in that novel, really are what she experienced. And we'll, you know, we'll talk about that more, but look, for the four years after he died until 1809, Jane and uh, Cassandra and the mother, they had rented quarters and they lived in rentals, or they went around to their various brothers who had houses, like the one who was rich, and kind of were guests there and so forth. So again, we see this in her novels all the time. That peripatetic life was not obviously very comfortable, and you're sort of feel like you're a burden on your family too because you keep you know they have to support you. Finally they moved into a large cottage in Chawton, which that's a very famous name to any Jainites. And Chawton Village is near Edward's estate. His estate was Chawton, so they were close by the, the, the rich brother. But they had their own snug cottage, we hope. And she lived there until really the very end of her life, until she was so sick in 1817 that she had to go away and try to get medical treatment. So that was her final home, was that little cottage. So basically, Jane had been writing since she, well, that we know of, seriously writing from the time she was 11 years old. And even that young, it's clear she was a serious writer. This wasn't just some little hobby or something ladies did to use up the time, you know, these genteel ladies who aren't ever trained for any kind of work. They're not educated or trained in anything except maybe what they learned from their mothers. So 
when the father died, they couldn't go and get a job unless there's governessing, which was miserable, as we know from the Brontes uh, experience. It was miserable, and also it was a come down in their social station. And that is one of the hardest things for, I think, to grapple with for us today is that that was real. Your social station was real, just as real as caste was in India. Maybe, and it was almost as impenetrable. There was some movement up and down that could happen, but it was rare and it'd be like kind of little micro moves. So if your family's trying to move up the scale, you're kind of doing it by little micro moves. You better yourself and then the next generation, then the next generation. And maybe eventually you could make it up to landed gentry, possibly into nobility. So it's a very, very real thing. It has a great deal of meaning to be the daughter of a gentleman and people who are lower down the ranks, they don't want you in their group either, any more than you want to have to scrub floors. So, you know, it's really hard to grasp that. And that comes up a lot in these marriage stories with the, you know, can I marry this person? What does it mean to marry that person? Everybody is always considering how much they have and what they have. And are they a gentleman or are they in trade? And those were really important and meaningful. And the fact that she's bringing love into it and romance is creating that dissonance. And of course, we want to go with the love and romance. But that's because we've been so inculcated, you know. Let's face it. I mean, if you meet somebody and he seems like a really nice guy and everything, but he's on welfare and is not well educated and doesn't seem to be able to get out of that, and you're a professional person who's making a good living, you're going to consider, will I date this person with a view to marriage? Yeah. Yeah, we... You consider it. I mean, you consider it, right? I mean, cross your mind. Yeah, we all consider pragmatic realities when we're choosing our partners. You have to. Yeah. That's how you can choose to make sacrifices or choose to make compromises. But yeah, and that's a lot more possible these days because people have such a wide range of salaries and different job options. Yeah. And there is class, but it's not, it's not nearly as rigid at all. So it can be hard to relate to that, but I really want to hit that hard here at the beginning because in order to really give each character their due. Appreciate, yeah, their motivations and... And see, and also I think it's important too, and I'll uh, kind of show my hand a little bit right here up front. It's really important in order to understand her mastery of character and the fact that every character has yin and yang, good and bad, pretty much. I mean, you know, even, even Wickham, who's will come to Wickham, but even he's like the most dastardly of all our characters. There's always something that pragmatically is pushing that person or they have some kind of motivation that you can relate to if you will open your mind to what things were like back then. Uh, so she, she hated anybody who was all good and all bad. Even the people you're supposed to love the most are not perfect and really do have maybe irritating or uh, negative qualities. And the people you hate the most or laugh at the most, they actually have... Like, you go, if I were in their place, well, I'd probably be thinking about that too. So she makes him very, very human. Okay, so I'm going to go back to her writing, though, because I, I, I do want to talk a little bit about her early writing. So she wrote and wrote and wrote. And there are like three volumes of, of work of hers that we have not touched on called the Juvenalia. And Juvenalia, there were plays, essays, novels, short stories. Uh, there, in fact, there's one uh, satirical novel called Love and Friendship, which recently has been made into a movie, like in the last, I think, five years, starring Kate Beckinsale. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so I watched that, and it was okay. It was enjoyable. I think a different director... It was just a little kind of too shiny and brittle the way they did it. Uh, and I think that somebody like maybe, you know, a, a director who wasn't quite so slick would have made it just that much better. But it's very witty. It's very Jane Austen. Uh, it's very early. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have the depth, but it's very good. And so amazing that she could have written this novel with this witty dialogue when she was, when she was in her teens, you know, when she was really young. So that's called the Juvenalia. And I have just, I've got to, oh, she was 14 when she wrote the novel, Love and Friendship. Wow. 
Yeah. So, okay. So there's also this collection of like short pieces called scraps. And she'd like maybe write them for a friend or whatever and, and, and just cause. So there's this one <laughs> scrap. It's a little, it's a paragraph, So I'm gonna, but I'm going to read the whole thing. And I think it's hilarious. And basically what it is, is um, it's like her, she's always sort of taking the mickey out of the gothic novel. She loved gothic novels. She read, she knew them all, and she knew them all intimately, and she understood the style. And with her eye and ability, she really picked up the, the little, the tropes and the, the structures that they used. And while at the same time, she never wanted to do that, and she kind of put scorn on the black and white of every novel, really feeling it's boring to have, oh, she's always good, and she's good in every way. And he's always bad, and he's bad in every way. To, to, to have it be like that, she her choices to make everyone complex and to toy with you and to play with the reader by making you really like somebody who maybe underneath has real flaws that you don't want to see or acknowledge and to make you really dislike somebody who maybe is really honorable and good. And and I don't mean Darcy because yeah. Darcy ends up being the hottest shit. But so she did that as a like playing games and in response to and in conversation with these gothic novels by these novelists. Um, and she did it so well. So this is like one of her very early little takes on it. It's very funny. Um, so this is from Scraps, and it's entitled, A Letter from a Young Lady Whose Feelings Being Too Strong for Her Judgment Led Her Into the Commissions of Errors of Which Her Heart Disapproved. It starts like this. Many have been the cares and vicissitudes of my past life, my beloved Eleanor, and the only consolation I feel for their bitterness is that on a close examination of my conduct, I am convinced that I have strictly deserved them. I murdered my father at a very early period of my life. I have since murdered my mother, and I am now going to murder my sister. I have changed my religion so often that at present I have not any idea of any left. I have been a perjured witness in every public trial for these last 12 years, and I have forged my own will. In short, there is scarcely a crime that I have not committed, but I am now going to reform. Colonel Martin of the House Guards has paid his addresses to me, and we are to be married in a few days. As there is something singular in our courtship, I will give you an account of it. Colonel Martin is the second son of the late Sir John Martin, who died immensely rich, but bequeathing only 100,000 pounds apiece to his three younger children, left the bulk of his fortune, about eight million, to the present Sir Thomas. Upon his small pittance, the colonel lived tolerably contented for nearly four months, when he took it into his head to determine on getting the whole of his eldest brother's estate. A new will was forged, and the colonel produced it in court. But nobody would swear to its being the right will except himself, and he had sworn so much that nobody believed him. At that moment, I happened to be passing by the door of the court and was beckoned in by the judge, who told the colonel that I was a lady ready to witness anything for the cause of justice, and advised him to apply to me. In short, the affair was soon adjusted, the colonel and I swore to its being the right will, and Sir Thomas has been obliged to resign all his ill-gotten wealth. The colonel, in gratitude, waited on me the next day with an offer of his hand. I am now going to murder my sister. Yours ever, Anna Parker. <laughs> <laughs> you can, yeah, that one's heavily satirical <laughs> in a way that the other novels maybe you don't notice right away. Well, and it's also like kind of spot on. This is... This is the kind of stuff that went on in Gothic novels. This is the kind of plotting they would do in mm. some, ca you know, in, in some cases, of course, not all of them. But yeah, I just think that I think it's hilarious. I just love how she just the ending is so funny. It's like, but um, bump, I'm now going to murder my sister. <laughs> and so she did write these novels, and like, uh, I think it was what what did we say? It was seventeen seventeen ninety five that she actually wrote Sense and Sensibility, which is sort of like the first adult canon novel. Even though uh, she wrote uh, Love and Friendship when she was 14. And there was another one in that uh, group called Lady Susan. 
that ended up being published long in 1871, long after her death, that was pulled out of the juvenilia. But in terms of her adult, sort of mature work, there's Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, this is in order, uh, Mansfield Park, Emma, Northinger Abbey, uh, which was the first one that was published posthumously, Persuasion, also published posthumously, and then Lady Susan. So essentially, she wrote Sense and Sensibility in 1795, which I just said for like the fifth time. Sorry, you can edit that out. But then it was, wasn't published until 1811. So one of the problems I think that she had was she just couldn't get published. And so she had been trying for six, those 16 years to get this, this book published, one of her books published, and she just couldn't do it. It was just being rejected for whatever reason. I think probably because it was a lot different. It wasn't like these bangers that were being turned out at the time. And so maybe, just like today, publishers go, we don't have a niche for this. How do we market it? What do we call it? Because Austin was really doing some new stuff. And uh, so that was, must have been just so disheartening because she was, she wanted to be published. This was not just her little scribblings in her little drawer. Even though she sort of deprecated herself and said, oh, I just write on little bits of ivory meaning, you know, those little scrimshaw things. It was just a little tiny, so that she's very circumscribed and her, 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 everything, she, it was very small and, you know, modest. And I don't think that's how she was at all, but that's how she would, like, tongue-in-cheek kind of deprecate herself. So anyway, Sense and Sensibility finally came out in 1811, and then Pride and Prejudice came out two years later, which was, uh, and then she was just kind of published, boom, 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 uh, until her death. In fact, until the year after her death, when Persuasion was published. And even though it was, she was published anonymously, and she, again, it wasn't a bestseller. She probably, in her entire life, uh, netted six to seven hundred pounds on all of her, her publishing, which is not nothing, but it's not best-selling territory. But for five or six books or so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But basically, it was, you know, like the opinion makers... Uh, the, the, the critics, you know, the, the people in the know, they liked her books and they were popular. They tended to be short, and her re- reviews tend to be short, but, but and balanced, not really raving or anything, but generally favorable. They often really focused on what they saw were the moral lessons of the novels because they were always kind of looking for that so that, because novels were considered women's reading. Men were not supposed to read novels. I mean, that's, you know, like, that's meant like men eating quiche or mm. men, you know, you know whatever even though men did read them, they were considered to be corrupting of female morals because I I guess because they weren't doing needlepoint or something and they were getting these stories in their heads and maybe getting ideas above themselves, especially since the women in them were independent and we're getting a little bit of like, I mean, their wishes and desires. Yeah, novels tend to be about social mobility to a degree. To make something happen, right? And so for them to try to winkle out these moral lessons that are in Austen's novels, then that way it could uh, sort of... Legitimize them. Exactly, give them credibility. But the, the great novelist, Sir Walter Scott, are you familiar with Walter Scott? Ivanhoe? By name, mostly, yeah. yeah. Ivanhoe is one of his books. He's not, he's not a bad writer. He was very much, he's very historical. He did a lot of historical research. But he was very, England, my England, and chivalry, and... And he was tended to be all good and all bad people, but I think he's all right. He's really not a novelist for today, but he was very, very successful. And he was rich and he got his books published big time. He read Emma he, and he did a review of Emma in 1815. And he used it as an example to defend the novel as a genre. Hmm. It praised to the realism that he, he saw it as realism, meaning her books aren't real, real. They're not realistic, no. but they're realistic compared to the other books that were being published at the time. There's realism in the way that people behave and speak. And, and in the social structures yeah. that are being presented. So, I mean, women are not running to the top of the mountains with the wind whipping their hair and yelling and, you know, uh, yeah. you know oh, there's a, de- there's a head in my trunk. 
Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff that they would find. I think in Northern Abbey it is, the uh, main character, the, the female protagonist, she wants this place to be like uh, the Castle of Artronto, which was a big novel, a huge novel at the time, which I have tried to read and just couldn't even get in. It was so difficult to read. So she's expecting, she sees this trunk and she's expecting there like to be a severed head or treasure or something in it, and she opens it up and there are like folded bonnets in there. Right. So, I mean, that's like so Jane Austen. So that's her realism, right? So it was seen as realistic in that way. And he, and he, he said, this is a quote from his review, he said, the art of copying from nature as she really exists in the common walks of life and presenting to the reader, instead of the splendid scenes from an imaginary world, a correct and striking representation of that which is daily taking place around him. I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's correct. She was popular enough, but after her time, after the Regency, we move into the Romantic and Victorian periods. She was a little bit less in favor because Dickens and George Eliot were coming in. And so now we're back to not really Gothic, but that that romanticism. We've got the Byron coming up and, and, and Shelley, and these people are pushing through these big emotions and all kinds of you know really intense situations that people have to deal with. So that workaday world that Jane Austen was in was not quite as in, in favor. But tellingly, and I think very sweetly, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert read Pride and Prejudice to each other. And so, um, really, because Cassandra burnt all those letters of Jane, oh, uh, of Jane's, and because Jane was not really, I mean, she wasn't like George Eliot or George Sand or you know, female authors who are like out in the world doing stuff, meeting people, da da da. We really don't know very much about her. There, and there wasn't really a ton of big incident in her life, and and what there was, we don't really know about. But there are some rumors and things about her love life, about her romance. She never married. And there is a myth or story about her having this big romance with this uh, guy named Thomas Lefroy, who ended up being a jurist later in his life, a, a judge, that they were in love and they couldn't be together because they didn't have any money. And this is what caused her to write these novels and there's a film, which I've talked about to you before, called Becoming Jane, which you haven't seen. It stars Anne Hathaway, and it's a nice film. I'd say if I had to give it stars, three out of five, which is like, yeah, that's fine. But it wasn't great, you know. And I guess par- partially because it wasn't true. Yeah. And the movie really posits it's a, a fictionalized thing of this great romance between Anne Hathaway and James McAvoy, who play the, the two characters. And they couldn't be together, and then they were apart from each other, and then... Later, years later, sort of a tribute to her. He names one of his children, Jane. And of course, Jane is like a completely common name. So I, I really think that's unlikely. But what we do know here, here's the facts that we have. And that she did meet with him and dance with him. And maybe she fell in love with him. I mean, we don't know what her feelings were. But I would, from the facts I see, I would say, no, I don't think she'd fall in love. She's too level-headed for that but she might have been mightily attracted and really interested in having some hopes yeah having some hopes from him going oh because of course that's what women were supposed to do so she probably did that so so i think she was really interested in him and anyway they met during the christmas holidays in 1795 so that's when she started writing sense and sensibility or she was writing sense and sensibility however you know he had to leave uh because he was uh, studying law and so he left that January. So they met Christmas 1795. He leaves 1796 to go to London and study law. And they never saw each other again. Very short acquaintance. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in the film, I guess, they met many times secretly during that period or whatever. It seems like she was taken with him because she did mention in the very few remaining letters. Who knows what she said in the other letters? Anyway, she did seem kind of interested because she wrote a, a letter in, in January, early in January of 1796, to Cassandra. And she kind of teases her about how her Irish friend uh, and she were profligate 
and shocking in the way of dancing and sitting down together at three holiday balls. So, you know, that's that thing about, oh, he only danced with her, or they danced together too many times, and they were chit-chatting and not circulating enough. Right. And here's another quote from that. But as to our having ever met, except at the last three balls, I cannot say much. Noting that Tom ran away when we called on Mrs. Lefroy a few days ago. And then after the running incident, Tom went to Steventon, where she was living, kind of called on them uh, with his uh, cousin, George Lefroy. But apparently Jane wasn't in, so they obviously didn't see each other. Or if they did see each other, that was the last time. And so then there's another letter later, a week later in January of 1796, where she writes to Cassandra, I rather expect to receive an offer from my friend in the course of the evening. That's the fourth ball that they went to. I shall refuse him, however, unless he promises to give away his white coat. That was a joke about the novel Tom Jones and so forth. And then the last time she mentions him is in November of 1798, so in the letter, she says that, or indicates that Madame Lefroy uh, knew that her nephew was not romantically pursuing Jane. So he wasn't interested. And Jane, she wrote, of her nephew, Madame Lefroy says nothing at all. And touchingly, she said of herself, she was too proud to make any inquiries. Yeah, so, so you know, disappointment, maybe a little bit of... Yeah, she probably thought he was hurt pride. Yeah, she thought he was pretty cute. She, they had probably had some kind of teasing when they were at the ball, but it just sounds like he wasn't into her in that way or that interested or maybe going to law school. He wasn't interested in anybody at the time. Yeah. And so, who knows? You know, something could have developed if, if the situation were right. But I don't think there was this grievous love affair that just made her want to write these novels. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all fodder for her mill. And then there is, uh, there was kind of a family tradition also that there was a young clergyman that she met uh, at the seaside in the summer of 1801, that they were interested in each other and that Cassandra approved of it, but that he died unexpectedly several months later. Bummer. There's no real document, no contemporary documentary evidence for that. It was just sort of a story in the family. So it could be true. The last bit of her romantic life that we know about is that she had a confirmed marriage proposal from a guy named Harris Big Wither. And <laughs> he's a, he was a brother of, of uh, some of her friends. And they visited together in December of 1802. So now she's getting kind of older. Yeah. But he was interested in her, and she accepted the proposal. And then within 24 hours, she realized her mistake and withdrew her acceptance. Buyer's remorse. Yeah. Do we know anything about, uh, is it just him? She wasn't into him or? That or, you know, it could have been just that she just realized what it would mean if she got married and maybe it was the circumstances, maybe it was his person. You know, maybe she accepted him because she was getting older and she was getting worried and thought she'd better for the good of her family and then change. I don't know. Thought better of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she wasn't going to be able to be a writer if she got married. And I think maybe that had a lot to do with it. Yeah. You know. She's probably a very healthy woman who had interests. And clearly you can tell, you know, she writes these pretty hot men in certain of her novels. You're like, okay, I get it. You mean healthy woman in terms of having a healthy... Her interest. She had sexual interest. interest. Yeah. Yeah. But I would have to know that she wasn't going to be able to be a real writer if she got married. Because she'd be running a house and she'd be expected to have children and she would have children apace. One every year or every, you know, every 18 months. And it would totally take up her time. That's, that's my take on it. So basically, one of the greatest influences on Austin was uh, Samuel Johnson, who I don't really know as much about as I should. I do know a little bit about him. He was a very misshapen character who was like a brilliant, brilliant mind, and he was one of the most important writers, essayists of England in the 18th century. And he was a humanist. He was a lot, you would like his politics, very much uh, uh, noting the inequities and inequalities of the system. He did a dictionary. He's one of the first people in in the English language to do a dictionary. So that was very, very important. So very, very intellectual, very smart. Anyway. Sorry, what did you mean when you said he was misshapen character? Well, oh, sorry. He had like a limp and he had a bad back and I think one of his eyes or both of his eyes were kind of squinty because he couldn't see. He's blind in one eye. Oh, he's blind in, 
and one eye and deaf in one ear, and he tended to be like kind of crooked. Okay. And he he was in a lot of pain in his life. He had yeah. a lot of physical pain. Chronic chronic pain and disabilities. Yeah. So, so literally, yeah. He's literally misshapen okay. because of, because because of his disabilities and so forth. Got yeah. it. So he was a big, big influence on her. And also the, a couple of novelists named Francis Burney and Maria Edgeworth, or Mariah Edgeworth. I don't know how they'd say it in England. Probably Mariah. Anyway, they were really, really, really important and popular novelists in the very late 1700s, very early 1800s. They wrote just like the, these, these key novels. In fact, we were at the bookstore today. We were at a, a bookstore called Magus Books, which is great. And they have a little annex here in, in our neighborhood that you can go into and I was pointing out to Zoe one of the novels that was really important the castle of Toronto that was written by by these novelists other really important influences were Sir Walter Scott and Richard Brinsley Sheridan who was a very famous playwright at the time and uh, Samuel Richardson who we have to talk about a little bit Samuel Richardson wrote really super popular novels Again, everybody good, everybody bad. And at the time, they were he wrote epistolary novels. So the entire novel was letters back and forth. And I love me a good epistolary novel. But I think the reason that sometimes they did this, they did a lot of this, is because the novel form hadn't really been created and the idea of the omnipotent and omniscient narrator really hadn't totally gelled. And so this was a way to have it be a collection of letters. Because oftentimes they would frame these novels in, oh, I found these in a trunk. Right. Or somebody mailed me the, you know, these letters. Or, or somebody, this is a diary that somebody wrote. So they would get to it in that format versus just going, we could just dispense with that. And everybody knows what the form is and we just go for it. Interesting. I didn't realize that the epistolary... I would have thought those were derivatives of a novel, I guess, if you had just asked me. Yeah. Instead of it being the reverse that those forms were developed before the novel was fully developed. Yeah, epistolary slash like diary. Exactly, because it's sort of like, well, how do we, since we always just have these direct communications, or it's somebody giving me facts and writing something factual, how do I tell the story? Yeah. You know, you have to, so that's like their framing device. And he wrote a couple that were super, super popular, Pamela or Virtue Rewarded. Okay. And the other one is Clarissa, or the history of a young lady. And I've read Cl- Clarissa, and it's a thousand pages long. Oof. I don't think I read the whole thing, because you just keep going and going and going and going. And it's just, it's really that whole thing. It's very, like, oh, this cad is knocking on the door of this lady's virtue, and he's de- demanding that, that she give in to him. And her family don't realize that he's a bad guy, and so they're pressing her to marry him because he's a lord, and you know, and she's trying to resist, and they lock her in her room and won't let her out because you know she can't uh, get letters out, and finally she gets a letter out to somebody that you know, it's, it's all that kind of stuff, back and forth and over and over, and really, really recursive, so that you're kind of like, oh God, how many times are you gonna say this? Oh, for God's sake. Which I, that's one of the things I love about Austin. She gets to the point. It moves along for the most part. Yeah, it's true. And then she also really liked Lawrence Stern, who's a guy who wrote, wrote Tristram Shandy. And that's a very, very satirical, very, very avant-garde book. Even today, I find it pretty challenging. Have you ever read that? No, I'm just familiar with the title. I didn't like it that, I didn't like it. I, I have a hard time with that kind of, kind of surreal. Although he did do a whole, like, two or, I don't know, several paragraphs about homunculus and homunculi in the beginning, which I did think was hilarious. So anyway, so these were really her her influences and things that she was in discussion with in her books. And then once she got published, she was popular, like I said, in certain circles. In fact, the Prince Regent, who eventually became George IV, he really liked her novels a lot. He really admired them. So he had a whole set at each of his residences. Wow. Where he went. So he, so he really liked him. What's really funny is that in uh, November of 1815, which is, that's like only a year and a half before her death, the Prince Regent had a librarian because obviously he didn't take care of his books himself. So he's got this librarian. The guy's name is James Stainer Clark. And he invited Austin to come and visit the prince's residence and see the library. And then he hints that maybe he should 
dedicate her next novel, which was Emma, to the prince. Uh-huh. So what can she do? I mean, she can't say no. <laughs> so she dedicates it to the prince. She dedicates it to the prince. That's so funny. And she really disapproved of the prince regent. And so she wasn't like thrilled with this notice mm. because she wasn't somebody who was like all into, oh, he's high status. Because the prince regent, as we know from reading the Scarlet Pimpernel and other things, he was all about clothes and horse racing and he had mistresses and abounding. But, and he had a few mistresses that he was really, he was actually pretty loyal to his mistresses. He had a couple that were just like long-term mistresses and drinking and eating. He was, he was very fat. Hedonistic. Yeah. Very hedonistic. And, she, and this was not her jam at all. So she really didn't approve of him and didn't want to dedicate her book, but she kind of had to. Uh, so basically the librarian also gave her some hints about maybe she should write different kinds of things that Prince might like better. Which is really funny because he liked her books well enough to have sense of them. Right. But so the librarian is trying to tell her what she should be writing. And apparently, and I guess this is probably pretty common, friends and family, now that she's published, are like, oh, I have a great idea for you. Or, you know, you really should do this or that. And so she really irritated her. And so she wrote this thing called plan of a novel according to hints from various quarters <laughs> and so it was basically an outline based on the hints she's gotten of the perfect novel and apparently in the original one she had all this marginalia that said who she got the kids oh, wow. from yeah so that's the kind of thing cassandra that's kind really of funny <laughs> yeah that cassandra kind of like you know does it still exist or did cassandra burn it i think that one exists yeah, she really didn't like this. And like I've kind of been hammering home, she does not like that black and white kind of thing. She said, pictures of perfection make me sick and wicked in one of her letters. Yeah, and so, and, and it was really right shortly after this time that she really began to, to deteriorate and she was really got steadily worse. Nobody knows exactly what it was she really died of. And, you know, you can look online and see what people guess, like maybe Bright's disease, which is what Jean Harlow died of. If you remember, uh, which is basically where your kidneys don't work and you, be, you your body poisons itself because it can't get the toxins out of the blood. But nobody knows what it is. And then she got worse and then she died. So should we end on that really tragic note? <laughs> it's really funny to me how I, I certainly grew up with a perception that she, Jane Austen, like she was just, you know, a, a domestic person and was writing her novels on bits of paper while the other women in the room were embroidering and stuff and kind of just like doing it for fun or doing it because she felt like it and and then she just happened to be kind of a genius was kind of like mm -hmm. how it's presented um and not that she was hard working getting down there writing 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 and really honing her craft right like she today she would just be a professional writer right, exactly she would just be a novelist right um and so that, yeah, that's definitely one of the things that I've been learning through this process of revisiting some of her work. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about the books more specifically because there's a lot of things that I really appreciate about them. Um, one being her just really incisive observations of social situations and people and people's motivations and social scenarios. I also really appreciate her precise eye to social mores and the economic pressures that people are under because I don't think that her novels are very what's the word Mo moralistic right I mean they are there's some morals about like the best way to be it's about character though rather yeah. than just just behavior it's how behavior is an indication of your character and that is the bedrock of a person is what is their character Exactly. And so it has a lot more to do with a person, their character, but then also like the, the situations that everybody is born into. Like very much we live in a society type novels where she's exploring that. She's obviously a, very much against the fact that having such economic constraints constrains women. She's not just women. Yeah. She also shows how it can constrain everybody. And the rich are freer, but they also have... A lot to deal with too I mean so everybody's constrained by this patriarchal financial structure uh, 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 it's I guess it really isn't capitalistic but it's what's well it's the precursor right yeah what's yeah. interesting is it's the shift 
from the feudal, if you will, the landed and, and owning of land and, and all that, into the capitalistic system. And so you, you see it in her novels. You see tr there's a people with trade and how people react to that. that they're, not, they're not high enough up in the mm -hmm. social structure, no matter how rich they are, because they're not, they're, their wealth isn't coming from land and from that feudal structure. And I just want to interject here, before I forget, that all, this, all the things Zoe is saying, I totally agree with. But also just, she's a fucking fun writer. She's witty and she's hilarious and her dialogue is, it's as good as any screwball comedy dialogue. It's just great, great stuff. And the fact is, she created something new. Or if she didn't create it, she took something that was just birthing and she made it real she made it actual there's like before jane and after jane for the novel ultimately and the thing is is that for decades decades and de 100 a year 150 years she was never taught in college english programs because she was a woman because oh psh, we'll teach sir walter scott who's not nearly as good a writer as she is and certainly not up with the times it's only been recently like 50 years or so that she's actually maybe not even 50 years where she's actually been starting to be considered like an important figure in English literature okay I just had to say that yeah that's it irritating <laughs> yeah and I guess all I wanted to say is that she's often nowadays touted as like a feminist writer mm -hmm. and I think that that's not that's kind of not accurate. She's more just a very acute observer of the human condition and she doesn't have a feminist agenda and so she shouldn't really be like categorized that way. But the effects of her writing, because they're true, are feminist. Yes. If that makes sense. Yes. To call her feminist is both too much and too little. Mm hmm You know? Yeah. And just and just sort of not historically appropriate, but well, that's um, true, too, because that feminism, well, they, it did kind of exist in the fact that there was Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, who wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Women. Right. Now, I don't know if you could call her feminist or not. Right. Proto-feminist, maybe, because she was answering Edmund Burke and his tract, delimiting women in this very, very narrow mm. place and their rights, and, and so she was very, very important. Feminism was burgeoning, but certainly Jane Austen was not thinking about it in that way, and yet... The She's, impact of her books yeah. have everything to do with... Feminism. Yeah. And if you take feminism in its broadest sense, because feminism incorporates male freedom as well, we all need to step forward together. I mean, I think if you look at that, because I don't feel like she's anti-male or anti-man at all, but there is... She does point out how things aren't fair. We, we can get into, since we're running running away with ourselves here with our enthusiasm for Jane. I think next episode, guys, we're going to, we'll talk about the books themselves and the structures and the characters and the plot and all that great stuff. And then we have some recommendations for things you can watch, uh, give you some ideas of some fun Jane Austen fanfic you might want, get, want to get into. What do you think, so? Anything you want to end, end with? Nope, that's it. We'll see you next time. want to get in touch with us shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you thanks for listening Grand